0: Hey guys, and um, welcome back to the Elite Coaching Podcast, episode 21. Uh, we're joined with our senior coach again, Julia. How are you, bud?
1: I'm good. How are you? I'm
0: good. How's, um, how's prep? You are deep in the trenches at the moment.
1: I am. Some days are better than other days. <laughs> Today's not the best day. Yesterday was a good one, but that's just the name of the game. It's all right. It'll be better tomorrow.
0: We've had a, a, good, a good conversation off air about... Julia's roadmap and you know we have some some pretty exciting shows lined up that we're going to go to and you know one of the things we kind of spoke about was that that push that Julia's in at the moment and it's it's a hard push and I definitely feel for you to do it because I've been there before and no doubt I'll be there again very very soon and um, but I'm, I'm excited to kind of see how this 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 plans out how have you found the last kind of couple of weeks we've really ramped it up Iger, and we've started to push it you know a lot harder how have you found the the aggressiveness of this now versus what we've done before
1: um i'm enjoying it i kind of asked you this weekend for like more of a push because like i'm a very like product focused person when it's time so if i don't feel like i'm making the progress that i want like i want the push yeah. but then obviously there's days where it's like my energy is terrible and i'm hungry and i'm like Ugh. Why am I doing this? But it's all worth it when, like, when you wake up and you feel lean and you start to see like the cuts and things like that. So it makes it all worth it.
0: Yeah, I think for for a lot of people when we start off these journeys, it's it's just that you need that instant. Okay, this is what I'm doing. This is working. I feel that sense of accomplishment and achievement. And when, I I was I doing a podcast last week with Josh for the Performance HQ, and we talked about this, and it was that trust buy-in for for a lot of people they need to experience that early on like if you start off a diet phase you want to have that within the first couple of weeks okay something has changed i trust like that coach's ability or i trust the process and then when that trust then elevates and, and escalates the entire process becomes a little bit easier and i think you just needed to feel not that you don't trust me and we've been on the show many times before i know you do but i think you just need to feel that. Like buy into the process where like I feel a little bit more tired. I can see more change. Like when we saw that scale weight drop, we were like, "Yes, this is what this is what we wanted." Okay, we saw that first movement, and we know with you once it's past this point, it's just it, it's a gold mine. Past this point, from a conditioning perspective, which is um, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it's, it's been an interesting one so far, dude. So Jay is well. We'll talk about the timeline because I know we had a conversation off air, but it was actually a pretty cool conversation to have. So. Jay, how many weeks are we out from potential show number one?
1: Eight.
0: Eight right? weeks. Eight weeks. Yeah, eight from weeks. From
1: potential show number one. It's all up in the air, but hopefully show number one, if not 10 weeks from show number two.
0: Yeah, right. And the the, the goal within, within Jay, within this next eight, eight weeks, is just to push. Like, I think from, from myself looking, I'd say five weeks out condition wise, you're probably at, at the moment. And we know with a really aggressive five-week push, we can like pull you into where we need to be. And the beauty about this is we have more time than what we need, and we've only really ramped up the aggressiveness of it now. And you know, the next side we we we, we kind of touched uh, about this before, but the aggressiveness of the eight, next eight weeks have to be reflecting of the goal. We're just about to enter into you know stepping on stage. The conditioning requirements and expectations are far superior to photoshoot prep just simply because it's comparison you know it's subjective comparison and they have a standard and a criteria that they're looking for and we have to meet that standard and criteria absolutely bang on and conditioning is one of those criteria markers that we aim for so uh, potentially eight weeks out from show number one if we feel like a little bit closer that you know it's not feeling right which we had that conversation about we're going to go with our good instinct on this one so we have show number one eight weeks out potential show number two slash could be show number one might also be 10 weeks out um, and then we have some some pretty cool runway alignment leading into may and june so it's actually a pretty long prep season with really nice spaced out shows because you're, you're talking about potential last show being in your hometown in june right
1: yeah Ooh, we'll see <laughs> maybe we'll see how uh, i feel by the end of it all
0: <laughs> yeah no I, th- I think i think for you, you, you you'll, you'll be fine what, what you can you can manage it quite and like we said, you, you can manage it quite well. And once we hit that show number one and you get that buzz and excitement and the condition is there, it's it's so easy to hold condition like that. We we talked about this previously, but like getting Jay to this point hasn't been hard, but it's going to be hard from here to get to where we need to be. And we're here for that push, we're here for that challenge, we'll face it head on. But once she gets there, it's a walk in the park to stay there. So we don't mind having that extended time period because when you're in stage condition and you've got so many variables to play around with of refeeds lowering cardio pushing food higher it's just keep you where you are that's a walk in the park so i I think the timeline will be fine i think that last show in june could be a could be a nice one to aim for um which is pretty cool
1: yeah for sure i'm excited about it all excited to uh have my first stage experience
0: yes it's 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 good and the, the team we have in the states julia two julius and abby we've got a really really nice little one way for all of you guys within, within your show season so it's gonna be a busy a busy busy year and of course i'm, I'm gonna fly over uh to the guys and just make sure we can really manage their peak and you know de-stress and enjoy the process and get some training in, get some cool footage of everyone over there and just just be there on the day to help support calm nerves and just make sure we can nail your peak you know we said that in the in the show there's a like a, a team prize isn't there
1: yeah, a team prize. I think there has to be three of you, and there's three of us, so we're in the running.
0: Yeah, three. What the, three wins? I wonder what the 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 gift is for three three wins and an overall.
1: I don't know. I think it's cash prize, five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: You can co- contribute that to the coach's uh, expense coming over. My flights coming over. No, I'm just kidding. That that be cool. It can pay for the post show. I actually have other other Julia. On the hunt for um a pretty cool restaurant nearby, so she's been like every morning doing her cardio. She's been like looking up food places nearby and like sending them over to me. And I've been like, we'll just pick somewhere close by so we can just go straight there. We can have a nice team dinner after it, and uh, I all celebrate uh, as a team, and and that'll be a pretty cool experience.
1: Yeah, for sure. I thought we were going to IHOP though.
0: We can do both. We can go to have the next day. <laughs> but your, your show will be over quite early. Like, I'd imagine, depending on how it might run and how busy the show, show will be, like, you could be off stage by 1 p.m., you know? Like, if this starts at 10 or 11, depending on the way the class structure might run, you, you could be fifth or sixth category in, you know? And you, you like, if the classes aren't that busy, you could, like, you Could be in the arena for less than an hour and you're you're done. And then we can go straight to IHOP and then we can pick out where we go for the team dinner in the in the evening mm-hmm. time. Perfect. All right. So we're gonna um, we're gonna touch on female program design inside the space podcast. And we're gonna give our take on how we program. And just to give a, a little bit of context, I suppose, behind this, we are a, a coaching team that we predominantly coach females, like 95-96% of our client base. Our females. And I feel like we've always done quite well in regards to muscle building and, and creating a, a much better look, a, a aesthetically pleasing look to a physique, going for a photo shoot, stepping on stage of general transformations based on how we program. Um, and just kind of give, giving some context on why we do what we do. And just to give you all a bit of a better understanding about how we like to program for females which i think is, is is pretty is pretty important to run with so um okay what well, we'll kind of kick off with we'll, we'll kind of start from the get-go really and we'll look at like when a client initially first comes in um jay what would be your like when you initially get a consultation in and you're thinking about setting up their their training program what are the first things you're looking at off their consult form to just get your mind starting to move the way we move it?
1: definitely first thing is their experience in the gym so far. Like have they ever stepped foot on a gym floor? Have they ever picked up a weight? Do they know uh, kind of the ins and out of being on a gym floor? The, then second is looking at like what equipment they have available to them. Like are they working out at their apartment gym? Are they in a gym that has everything we could possibly need? And then I think third thing after that is what's their training availability like how many days is realistic for them to be in a gym working out um, with a split that is going to work with their lifestyle overall
0: Hmm. yeah i think it's, it's it's good to look at like every aspect because the last thing we want to do is have a lower body dominant mesocycle that's six sessions per week with every piece of kit we can think of. And like Jay said, it's just not feasible for their timeline, not feasible for their um time discrepancy across the week. And if we're unrealistic with our demand and our ask, the, the product from their end is not going to be met. And I think it's it's a good point to make because we, we actually touched on this as well before when we were talking about a fat loss, but it kind of inevitably is the same concept of trust them and, and buying into trust um with within a process. And if if you can program the way that Jay has just like said, she does it in regards to looking at everything they, they essentially can give you in regards to information and data. And you can write that plan that's specifically for them based on their experience, their time, what they have available to them. And they can go and they can just execute that. It immediately will create trust and buy-in from them. And then their want and their desire to fulfill that program is going to be met rather than this question mark that could potentially be put and um, if, if it's not suited for them or if it's not ready for them to to come true um, from, from my end of it when I when I look at a start point I'll take a little bit of it a different a different swing at it Um, I look at like their physiques as a big one and look at like the muscle groups that we feel okay when we look at we're going to talk about like our pillars of program design now in a moment and what we really look to identify to grow develop progress amongst the mesocycles that we run i look at their physique and i look at like basically anterior to posterior left to right like front to back left to right and we we'll look at the muscle groups that we think okay where are strong where is not if we add more tissue here will it present the best look and the most aesthetically pleasing look to a physique and we have to have that like very personal identification and in essence write down the muscle groups that we want to add the most volume to the most frequency to prioritize inevitably amongst the mesocycle rotation to create the best and most most possible outcome and then we need to look at it even even further so if we had like three categories of like we had a general online transformation and then we had a photo shoot preparation and we had like someone stepping on stage the discrepancy of each is going to be way different again so you need to look at that initial baseline person and identify them as like a, an individual and then they need to be put in essence into a category and then when they're in that category even further detail needs to in. it was just an online transformation we would be looking at just improving the weaknesses that they have you know if they have a very quad dominant individual well, we might we will look at that from a programming perspective to say well obviously when they do anything they do it through the quad so when they hip trust, it's coming through the knee when they're squatting it's coming through the quad they're very quad dominant they like that knee flexion their alignment of movement the mechanics of movement when we go to things is very knee dominant so they're very quad biased we need to look at their exercise selection to shift it to more hip bias so we can see maybe more unilateral work less uh, knee flexion to extension movement so what that means net less movement and bending at the knee and trying to emphasize more and um, range of motion at the hip to create more gluten hamstring bias and, We'll look at changing those discrepancies just a little bit to fix those slight imbalances that we might have to, again, create a slightly better look. Um, when we then look at a photo shoot prep, then we're looking at more body parts. If we can provide the correct stimulus, execution, volume, and frequency to create growth, how is it going to complement the photo shoot? So when you look at bicep work, when you look at medial delt work, when you look at ab work, when you look at quad work, if you can enhance those muscle groups and bring them up, no matter what they do inside that photo shoot, that's going to be recognized and noticed. And you can really play to the tune of like goal specificity and play to the tune of having an opportunity to change someone's physique from your programming to inevitably suit the outcome of the goal, which is pretty interesting. Um, and when you look at it from a programming standpoint, we're going to talk about again the, the pillars of program design now in a moment. It's just aligning all of those pillars towards those areas you want to improve to reflect on the goal. And then when we go into more bikini prepper stepping on stage then it's just class dominant so when you look at like jay for a prime example julia has a really good upper body so in the bikini class they will look at like symmetry and proportion so does the top match the bottom Does the right match the left is there imbalances from muscular perspective and then they look at like class criteria is the waistline really small are the glutes full and round is the upper body developed does she have medial delts does she have good biceps Julia fits a lot of those, we're just going to use you you as an example because you're here. Jay fits a lot of those categories already, but there are certain things that we do need to develop, like bring more pop to the glutes, bring more of a drop to the hamstring. So when we look at her program design, it's like, we need to program toward that criteria, but then inevitably personalize that criteria so the mesocycle is applied to her so she can fit into that criteria, if that makes sense. Probably not, but I hope it does. And that's kind of when, when, when I look at my initial set point of a of program designed for a female, it's not, okay, here's just a generic plan we can pull off the internet with a push-pull leg split where everything is four sets of 10 and there's no identification toward criteria of the individual and criteria of the goal. When we look at this like concept of personalized programming, that's what a personalized program is, in my opinion um anything you want to add to that dude
1: yeah i think yeah you have all great points um that's definitely something i left out when i said what i look at for programming for sure looking at their starting point and how they're coming in what muscle groups are kind of lacking for them and what they want to improve on in themselves like a lot of the times clients will come to us and say like i want better glutes or i want better hamstrings i want better shoulders and then you look at their physique pictures and they've already identified kind of that weak point for themselves. They know that like, they're not getting where they want to be with what they're doing with those muscle groups. Um, and then taking that into consideration when it comes to their programming, obviously taking into consideration too, if they're a beginner, um, kind of just getting them comfortable with the general movements too, before you get too specific into like advanced level movements in the gym. Uh, but definitely looking at physique is something that's super important when creating, like you said, a personalized plan. Like we don't just have people come in and give everyone the same split because everyone's different and everyone has different needs and wants uh, for training.
0: That's a really good point to make as well. It's the assessment and a, a, a point we actually wanted to touch on. So we can definitely touch on Now it's that assessment of movement pattern and the assessment of execution because, like like judy said you can have someone who has like a decent level of experience and you could put a barbell back squat on their program and you're just taking at face value what they've said i've had a pretty decent experience i've done a little bit of pt in the past i'm i'm, I'm good to crack on and you're like okay pretty well experienced let's do a barbell back squat and you never assess video feedback and then you see it once and you're like okay you actually can't back squat your mechanics are just way off we need to like strip this back what's kind of your, your approach to that so is it like when the first couple of weeks you'll start like drip feeding them to start sending over some video feedback or what way do you work that like response when you're actually looking at their program design
1: yeah for sure within the first couple of weeks asking um or even i'll ask my clients to like what in here what movement have I programmed for you that you don't feel that comfortable performing? Like, what do you feel like is your weak spot? And then they'll tell me and I'll say, all right, week one, send me over a video of you doing that. And I'll assess and see if it's something that I want to keep in um, or pull it back and strip it to something easier and work on like the actual mechanics of the squat before we load the bar on the back. Um, and then obviously as time goes on and they progress and get stronger and better, we can add those movements back in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's spot on Like identifying where they might be having an issue and then trying to solve that problem. Because the thing about a movement, and I, I say this to my clients all the time, and I know people get really put off when I ask for video feedback, because I think I'm going to absolutely annihilate them with their, with their footage that they send over when it's not the case. If your coach asks, asks you for feedback, please send it to them. Because you have to understand about movement, there is no right and wrong way to do anything realistically if if i say send me a video of a back squat and you can't hit parallel who's to say that's wrong that's just that was your interpretation of how you thought that movement pattern was supposed to go and all me and julie are going to do is inevitably give you our interpretation and why our interpretation might be slightly more beneficial if we create more depth if we slow down momentum if we create a pause in the bottom range but we don't just tell you what you're doing is wrong we would never tell someone that they're doing something wrong very important as a coach and going off on a slight tangent here but it's an important point to make that you never make someone feel like they can't do something you have to always have that like sandwich approach where you come in positive you give them that little bit of constructive feedback and you finish on something positive so they can take away the feedback that you gave but you've done it in a very positive way so they can walk away from it and say this is awesome they fixed it they fixed it they told me what i need to do they told me what i need to improve and i have good positive feedback to move forward with and it's a good point to make because I say to people all the time I'm like don't worry about sending me something no matter what you think is right or wrong and we get it all the time like we use movements that might not be a common ground Why ask for like a cuff attachment side raise or a cuff attachment tricep extension those are things that people are really have to like okay well, how, really how do I set that up that's where sometimes a little bit of confusion comes in but if it's just your normal run the mill leg press shoulder press squat pattern, you can't do it wrong, but there might be more efficient ways to do it. So when we take in your feedback, there's certain things we're gonna look for. We're gonna look for execution. So are we creating full range of motion? Are we allowing the body to go into, we would call passive or active range of motion. So active range of motion is inevitably where you hold maximum control over that load from a joint structural standpoint. And passive range of motion is inevitably where the load has pushed you into a range of motion where you have no control over. Prime example, you put someone onto a leg press and they come into the bottom range and their hip remains stuck to the seat. They're in active range. The second their hips start to roll off the seat, they've come into passive range of motion because the load has forced their hips into that position. Another good example, and this is something that a lot of people should look to identify when you're doing hip thrust, the knee, should always stay over the midline of the foot. And if we assess video feedback and we see the knee drop away from the midline of the foot and back towards the body, that barbell has pulled your knee towards you. So your hip has essentially stopped moving because it's hit its maximum range of motion because you've got a barbell and the pad on it. You can't achieve any more flexion or bend to the hip and the knee has pushed you back. That's what we're looking to assess. We're We're looking at those things to be like, okay, can we stay in active range of motion? Is your overall range of motion and just general execution good? Is the setup right? Is it the right bench height? Is it the right angle on the leg press? But other things that we're looking at as well, which drives me mad when people do this, when people send me over a video and they're like, oh, this is just my warm up set because I just want to, so you can see how my form is. We're also looking at like intensity and we're looking at intent and we're looking at what's the purpose of this set. So when we talk about that, like program design, if I if I have a female who like, well, we need to grow glutes, you're going to do a bikini class and you need bigger glutes. And she's sending me over like a hip thrust or a hip drive or a hyperextension. And it's not being done at max load. It's not being done at intensity. There's no intent behind it. Those are things that we can also change. And we can also look at to give good constructive coaching advice on to be like, your execution was spot on. your like, your range of motion was great. But excuse my language, you're you're fucking training like a pussy. Like there's no weight on that bar. You need to apply because again, people don't people don't know. People could think I'm doing what I thought was the right thing to do. And we assess it and we're like, no, 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 no. You need to be training at much heavier load. You need to take those sets to failure. That is not a failure set. You need to hit that failure point. And that can really change the game for a lot of people, right?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like a lot of the times when I ask for video feedback, it is for that point like just making sure and like assessing that the client is actually like physically pushing themselves. Yeah. Cause a lot of the times, like I know for myself personally too, like I think I'm at my failure point, but like, I'm actually not. And if I had someone, if I had someone behind me saying like, you're not even close, like you're moving, that's moving smooth. That looks like the first rep. And then I know I need to push myself a little bit more. And that's kind of the difficult thing about being an online coach is like, you're not in there in the gym with them to like, push them so getting that feedback and kind of just being that voice of reason for them that you, you can go a little bit harder like don't be scared and don't be a little bitch um yeah no,
0: that's that that's 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 so so true and i've had this in the past with a client where i think a, a brilliant exercise to assess the song is the squat you put someone into a dumbbell rear I elevate a split squat and you tell them that that set, there's a demand on that set to go to failure. Their last couple of reps should be like the worst experience of their life. That should be a very, very tough set to go through. But people don't have an understanding of what failure is. Like people don't realize what true failure is. So we've done this in the past with clients and it's a very, very good Points for them to make where they are understanding what a failure is. Right, put them on a spin bike, and every like ten to fifteen seconds, start to turn up the resistance on the spin bike. And you're gonna to start to get to a point where that resistance becomes very high, and their legs are starting to really slow down. And you come to a point where that resistance is a full whack, and they physically cannot move that spin bike anymore because their legs are just hitting such a point of fatigue, they've gone so far to a point of failure that that spin bike has stopped. And then you can take that back and you can say, okay, you understand now what failure is. That inevitably is the, the concept of fail. And you take that and you then apply it to a lap pull down. You apply it to a leg extension. You apply it to a split squat, hack squat, leg press, shoulder press, whatever it might be. They just don't have that realization of what that feels like. And it's, it's always good to have, because you can, you can tell them to go into a, a leg extension and keep going, but they might just not get that Sensation. Unless you're there with them and you can absolutely bury them, they just don't know what it is. But that spin bike is a really good tool to use for coaches out there because I think it's it's probably the only way you're really going to get them to understand what failure is because it is from a muscular perspective. Like it's that you're you're pushing against resistance just like they would on a leg extension or a leg press, and they have that like muscular failure set in because it's being applied against resistance, being applied against load. And it's just, it's a good point to, um, yeah, it's a good point. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good focus point to have when you're trying to teach them what failure is, you know,
1: for sure. And I feel like this might be going off on a tangent, but I feel like a lot of the times, um, it's easy to kind of not push yourself to failure on like unsupported movements, like, uh, like a back squat or like, say like a split, even though a split squat is not that, I don't know, dangerous, I guess, in my opinion, but on things like the hack squat or the leg press, like, if you, even if you fail at the bottom, like you're not going to get injured. You're not going to get hurt. Like there's, there's sets on the, on the machines. So especially on movements like that, or like the leg extension, like you can go to failure because if you fail, like you're, you just got to climb out from underneath the machine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's just a good point of reference for like training to failure in general. Like on the things that, you know, you'll be okay. If you fail, you should definitely fail.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Safety is a big is a bit. We're not asking everyone to put a barbell on their back tomorrow. We're going to a front squat and go to failure. You have to understand your parameters and proximities, but there is an element of failure that you need to. You need to figure out where it is, right? And once you know it's there, like Julia said, there's no reason why you can't do it on like leg extension, leg press. There's safety pins on a leg press for a reason. The safety pins on a hack squat. The safety pins on racks where you can barbell back squat. But it's just understanding where that failure point is. So yeah, if if you are a coach we highly recommend you to assess feedback from your clients because even the points that we just made around execution exercise delivery and setup and then intent from a training perspective is the only way you're going to ever feel like you're on the gym floor with them and that's something that we really do take pride in because i say this all the time about training You know, training is like that one thing that pulls everyone in together like when you look at the culture of a- any of us within this industry we are we're all here to train and we have to look at training really in depth it's no it's no benefit of just getting a generic program and following it for 16 20 25 30 weeks on end without any type of like progression model or change or periodization or you know personalization you're not going to seek a benefit from it so taking a bit more of an in depth approach helps but then take a very in-depth approach to how your clients are actually performing on the gym floor. And don't be afraid if, if a client sends you over 50 videos, which has happened to me in the past where I've asked for a video feedback and they sent me a video of every single set that they did throughout the entire week. So you're talking like 20 odd sets per workout, five sessions across the week, they videoed everything. And I, you know what? As weird as it sounds, I actually enjoyed that because I'm like, they want to learn and they want to know about about every single thing that they're doing like they have an interest in it don't get me wrong it took me a very long time to assess every single one of those videos and give good feedback on every single one but if your client does that maybe you need to be a bit more vocal about what you expect that was a lesson learned that you guys don't have to learn from my mistakes Um, and that was a very busy evening for me um okay so what we're gonna touch on now it's pretty good point and it's definitely a common misconception people have when you are training jay should should your training change when you're in like a caloric deficit versus a a surplus should there be a shift in program when you do go from face to face
1: there should be not necessarily a shift in program but maybe like a shift in volume and like intensity um when you're on like a prep for example like me right now if i had like Five sets, five like straight sets of every exercise. Like I could probably handle it, but if we were to touch like my my loading sets and they were to go up to three loading sets, I would probably I would probably walk into the gym. Like I don't think um, my body could physically handle it. Whereas opposed to, like with if I'm in like the off season and my food is really high, I, my cardio is low. Like I have a bunch of I have a bunch of gas in my tank. Like I can push really hard in those sessions because I know the rest of my day is pretty chill. So I think it definitely depends. Not like your program design, I wouldn't say much different, but definitely the intensity and like the volume within yeah. the session should change.
0: Yeah, one thousand percent. Because like the, the, the recovery demand in each phase is so different. Like Julia said, when, when when Jay was in her off season, we had like total total sets per week were probably five times higher than what they were at the moment because she has more food and that battle against fatigue that fatigue to stimulus ratio was was so far to the point of stimulus because she had so much food her recovery capabilities were so high now at a point of prep where food is down low cardio is up high there's way less food in the tank way less supply and demand on recovery capabilities that pendulum can swing very aggressively from stimuli to fatigue and now we're at a point where we are touching all within fatigue every single day run striking distance with fatigue, but in a prep, in a diaphase, phase, that's where you make up your ground, really like tipping your, your, your toe in the pool of fatigue. Like you need to be very, very close when striking distance, but from a, a training perspective, you need to have that identification of when is the right time to use training at your advantage, use volume at your advantage, use frequency at your advantage. And when, when do you not, And it's probably like as as we're talking about this topic, it's probably a good time to bring in like the kind of pillars of program design that we look at because we can identify when they change. We when we set up a a training split or a training program or a meso cycle, most importantly, a macro. You have we'll reverse engineer that. We'll start it again. You have a macro cycle because I know when people probably listen to that, it didn't make any sense. So I'll talk to you what a macro and a meso is, and then we'll break it down even further. A macro cycle is an overall goal. So when we reflected back to the very start, we said we had a goal for these individuals. And those individuals had very specific and niche goals that we needed to apply by, whether it was a bikini competitor, a focus prep, an online transformation. No matter what it was, that was their that was their main goal they're aiming for. And that goal is then subcategorized into smaller goals. And those goals are what we call a mesocycle. And a mesocycle is basically a training plan that lasts for Twelve to sixteen weeks, and it has a specific outcome that reflects the macro cycle. And we go from meso to meso, and we constantly change the meso cycles to change the adaptation to create new responses. But all the meso cycles immediately reflect the macro cycle. Okay, hope that makes sense.
1: I think that was a good. I think that was a good explanation. Yeah,
0: because I I, I kind of thought I was going to butcher that because it's kind of very hard to understand when you're on when you're probably listening to this via audio um but so like subcategorize them below that inside each mesocycle you're going to have certain pillars you're going to have volume you're going to have frequency you're going to have tla which is your total load accumulation we are going to have execution demands and these are things that need to be quite specific so when you look at your volume your volume is inevitably how many sets and reps you can apply to a specific muscle group spread across an entire week so when we look at Let's say Julia again, we're just going to talk to this kind of off season versus prep scenario. In Julia's mesocycle now, her volume of total sets and reps per muscle group across an entire week is way less than where she was on her off season. Her volume was way higher because those recovery demands are way different. When you look at frequency, this is how many times per week a muscle group is trained. So we would want as high a frequency. As we can basically, get. you know, we want You'd want to try to keep frequency maximum based on their recovery capability. So again, now during prep, we can keep the recovery. We can keep the the frequency high because the recovery demand is not as high because volume is not as high. But then when you look at in the off season, you know, you want to keep the volume high. But you want to keep the frequency high as well. So you want to have a very good relationship between the two, spread across the entire week. Now, when you look at TLA, your total load accumulation, this is where it can get a little bit tricky. And this is where people have like a misinterpretation of how volume can be applied to total load accumulation to inevitably create much more of a hypertrophic response. So when you look at the skeletal system, when you look at hypertrophy, the term hypertrophy means to duplicate or grow a cell. But there's many different hypertrophic things that happen in our body. Like cancer is a hypertrophic disease because it increases, duplicates, or enlarges the size of other cancer cells we're trying to do that from a muscular perspective we're trying to create a bigger demand on muscular hypertrophy so when we look at the total load accumulation this needs to be applied very differently inside of a off-season or a prep scenario now at the moment julia is applying what we would call a, a micro load system where every single week she has her logbook she has her set numbers she has her set volume and set frequency that we operate from. And she tries to get a little bit stronger every week. So as the weeks go by inside of her mesocycle, her total load accumulation is just building, right? Very, very gradually on a week-to-week basis. The more load we apply, the better response or better adaptation you're going to get to a muscle to force growth on that muscle. You can junction that total load accumulation then with good frequency and good volume, you have a really good opportunity to grow muscle because you're feeding the muscle what it needs. Load and adaptation of response, frequency, and volume. Of course, it goes without saying, execution then needs to be powered in with that. Without good execution, the other three are null void. So in a, in a prep scenario, the total load runway that will go on will be on a micro scale basis. So again, as we said, if Julie does a For our Irish listeners, a 10-kilo dumbbell press this week and moves to 12.5, that's a nice bump. It's a 2.5-kilo load increase, but her total load has accumulated higher this week versus last week. For our US, if it was a 25-pound dumbbell, she went to 27 or 30, her total load accumulation would then have have increased. But when we look at an off-season, we can take a completely different swing at this in the off-season because... Her recovery demands are far greater. Her total load accumulation can be forced at a much more aggressive rate. So when you look at the total load accumulation of how we can apply that, it doesn't always have to go from that micro loading. You can then look at set accumulation. So let's just say for argument's sake, if this week in her prep, Julia did 100 pounds. Now, I know you're a lot stronger than this. I'm just using it for maths purposes. A hundred-pound barbell hip thrust for ten reps. She moved a thousand pounds across that entire set. Right, hundred pounds times ten—that's a thousand pounds she moved across that movement, that volume, that frequency spread spread across this week. In an off season, we could do you know one set of ten this week, which is a thousand pounds. But then the following we could do two sets of ten, which is two thousand pounds. So we haven't just jumped up like we would in a prep. A five pound or a 10 pound we've jumped up a thousand pounds so that total load has not only gone up by 10 10 pounds which would be like 10% it's gone up by hundred percent so that total load accumulation runway can be way more aggressive in an off season phase versus an actual prep or a diet so when you look at like program design like we said should it change like, like Jay said it really depends like it really does and you need to have like a different mindset, I think, be behind both because you can't use the same tool to fix two different problems. Like in a prep, the problem is way different than in an off-season. Like your recovery demands, your position of failure, that stimulus to fatigue ratio is way different versus during an off-season when, again, recovery is way different. Like you're so far to the side of stimulation, you're very far away from fatigue. Like you can utilize the same structure of the meso you can inevitably use very similar structures to frequency execution stays the same but that position of volume and total load accumulation can be very much different depending on the outcome of each goal does that make sense
1: yeah i think it makes sense <laughs> no just um just generally speaking like if you're in a very intense like dieting phase like a prep or you're really deep into your own personal diet. Like it's going to be harder as your food is lower and your cardio is higher to use that energy for training without pushing the limits of fatigue. Whereas if your food is high, your cardio is low, you can push your like that's the only thing that you really have to focus on is like pushing that weight and getting better. You can add more reps, you can add more weight each week. It's going to be a lot easier uh for not easier per se, but it's going to be a lot safer, I guess, to push more weight rather than when you're in a deep end of a diet to focus on that training volume and focusing on progressing it as much as you would in an off season is basically what we're saying. Mm.
0: Uh, and you you hit the nail on the head there, it's like you, you just have to meet the demand of recovery of where you are. It's just they're so they're so far apart. And even it doesn't matter if it's a prep or an off season, it's just it just goes to higher low and it can also just go to general recovery. Like if you have Somebody who has never trained before, and we took the off season approach, like we spoke about with Jay, where it's like every week we're increasing sets, we're increasing volume, we're increasing total load accumulation. They are going to be absolutely fried. You would, you have to be very personal. You use maybe that more prep like scenario where volume is a little bit lower, frequency is okay, but the total load, it's like we just want a micro a little bump up every single week. We don't want that like massive jump forward in in t and total load accumulation which is um which is which is important but i hope that makes sense because I, all we're trying to really do here is just give you like our thought process on this you know because when you look at a, tra- a training plan there's a lot more that goes into a training plan there's a lot deeper thought process that goes into it as well and um, we're just trying to give you our our, our 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 take on it um okay so what, what i think we'll, we'll touch on now is like Actually, putting together like a, a plan, like putting together a training plan for a female, because when we look at the type of training splits that we might see, we'll run through a couple of, like, of examples and maybe as to why they might not be great examples for a female. And then we'll maybe go a little bit more into how we like to program and use like mesocycle examples of what's so like a very common one to be like upper body, lower body, which like spread across the week. Even even discrepancy of upper to lower because your volume's the same, frequency is the same, total load per muscle group is the same. Now you find it very very unlikely that a female would need that much upper body frequency driven in, um, because when you look at the aesthetics of a female physique, like what are we trying to bring up the most? Like ninety nine percent of our clients say we probably have the same answer to this, like glute ham quad. Yeah, you bring up that bring their waist in that you're talking about the ideal physique every woman wants small waistline, a little bit of development upper body, but like a good development within their lower. Um, and w- do you think it's not wrong? Because now, again, right and wrong way to do this, but people who follow those just generic splits. Like, why do you think they don't get the result and the response that they're probably after?
1: What do you mean, like,
0: like just if they followed follow that upper or lower? where like the volume of their upper is matching the volume of their lower, but they want to have that like lower body developed.
1: Well, because <laughs> they're not pushing the, also just going on a tangent with that is like, if you think about the um, amount of weight your lower body can push, like just overall in general, like you're a lot stronger in the lower body yeah. than the upper body. Uh, so following the same amount of volume for both parts it uh, doesn't really make sense if you're trying to achieve like a, a bigger look on the bottom half so you just got to k- take that into consideration first
0: one, one one thousand percent but yeah we see it all the time we see it all the time push pull legs can actually be brought into this conversation as well people think the ppl split is the best thing since sliced bread and it can be if programmed correctly so push pull legs but inevitably can be like push upper body focus which is chest shoulders tricep pull which can in like the context of most programs i'm not how we do it because we always pull a little twist on this inevitably it's back they'll do like pulling rowing motions sometimes they have a hip hinge but most times they won't and lower body will be full legs which inevitably when you actually think about that that means that lower body is the least amount of frequency and volume. Because they have push pull so it's like a a two to one ratio of upper body dominance to lower, which but how many people follow a PPL split? A lot of people, but their legs are the least amount of of volume attached. And I think you can follow a structure and a system because I love a PPL split. Like I think push pull off, legs off is a fantastic way to program. Because over a seven-day split, how that cycle returns again can be great if we change the structure of the push then we change the structure of the pull and we you know what i'm going to say here and we kind of pull it into our own words how would you change the structure of that pull
1: the pull would be probably a big emphasis on the glutes and the hamstrings and like a touch up on the back Indeed. so and then you think about that push pull rotation you're hitting the glutes and the hamstrings one day and then you're also doing a full lower so yeah. you're hitting all those muscle groups twice and then upper about like one and maybe a quarter of the pull day.
0: There you go. So what we did was, yes, we're still following that PPL, but instead of our pull being a back day, we've inevitably shifted it into a posterior, with probably 70% of that being in gluten ham with maybe like a hip hinge in there, but then some upper lat work as well. So what we've kind of done there is we've instead of having it like a two-to-one ratio, upper to lower, we've kind of flipped it and now we're two-to-one lower to upper just by having a little bit of a considerational change. But if you look at like a male versus a female differential in program design, for a male, you would keep it at structure number one because it reflects our needs. We want to have more volume on the pecs, on the shoulders, on the lats, on the upper back. We want to create that upper body dominance. But in a female, you need to flip that around to the demand and the goal specificity of them because that ppl if following it the traditional way is not a female dominant meso yeah. it's, it's actually the complete opposite you want to make sure we can flip that so you're inevitably having like push full posterior full legs which a lot a lot of people will also incorporate a little bit of quad work in their push session i've seen it more being like anterior posterior lower which i really like that split as well because you're kind of your whole volume then increases furthermore because your quad dominance has caught up because you will hit like gluten hams on posterior and you'll hit gluten hams again on the legs so you'll have that like even now fluctuation strokes your gluten ham dominance will be a little bit of a higher and um, volume point
1: yeah i think um Push pull lower in the way that we like to structure push pull lower for females is a great overall starting point for someone. I think getting comfortable in the gym, yeah, too. Um, because you're hitting those same movements like in a seven or whatever seven day span, you're hitting those same movements so consecutively, you're getting so comfortable with like learning how to push yourself with just those same movements over and over again. That I feel like it's their first time walking on a gym floor, and you know, every like five days you're going back to the same movements you get really comfortable um and you kind of learn how to progressive overload your moves yeah. rather than going in with a five-day split where you have something new each and every day it kind yeah. of just i think it's like a nice way to kind of ease in yeah. to a training split to be honest
0: yeah, like you said the, the volume and, and frequency element is just perfect it's absolutely perfect and you can like dive, dive even deeper into again to make like more specificities like jay said you can have high frequency of the same movement patterns hit, or you can pull in like a PPL rotation. So you can have push-pull rotation one, push-pull legs rotation two, where you hit like a hack on day one and you hit like a back squat on day two. You can challenge this more or less the same. And that's what Julia said. Like if you brought someone in and they were just like a a base beginner, it's a nice progression model to run off. You can have like baseline push-pull legs. Okay, here's rotation two. You have P1, p P2. Uh, pull one, pull two, legs one, legs two. And you have these like different progressions you can have within that meso as well. But I just, want, I just want to dive a little bit more into that and then I'll talk about like movements because this is probably going to stir the pot a little bit with people. But when we look at like push day for a prime example, let's talk female versus male. From a male's perspective, we would see a dominance of what like a lot of chest work and some shoulder work and some tricep work. From a female's position like where should that change and how should that change
1: um, not so much uh not a lot of like middle chest work a lot more like shoulder work delt work uh triceps mm-hmm. i would say primarily on a push day we're hitting all the parts of the shoulder primarily yeah. rather than any chest movement
0: yeah this is definitely going to stir the pot for a lot of people but uh, when you look at an the aesthetics of a physique why should a female have that high of a frequency of volume of chest work somebody please explain to me because no matter how much tissue they grow why waste that that effort like I, I i have nothing against flat barbell pressing i think it has a phenomenal point and a purpose from a strength perspective but from an aesthetic standpoint when a female it has no place in a training program
1: yeah and I think that's something that needs to be said like we a lot of people come to us for aesthetics like we yeah. produce aesthetic results like we're not saying we're strength coaches we're not saying like strength is our thing um people come to us cuz they want to aesthetically like change their body for that desired look so the way that we kind of think about programming and like specifically for a push day we are going to work on the shoulders for females because that's going to give us the aesthetic look that we're looking for
0: you know yeah oh one thousand percent and like just even look at the angle of the the movement like if you put a high incline where they will get some they'll get a lot of upper pec but they've got a lot lot of anterior delt as well that just versus a flat press miles apart you look at a pec deck female shouldn't ever do a pec deck ever in my opinion like you're talking about a movement pattern that serves no purpose from an aesthetic standpoint. It's about as useful as washing your car in the rain. It's not gonna serve a purpose and you're gonna have applied effort and applied effort and applied effort and it's just not gonna serve any purpose. Like Julia said, there needs to be that flip of identification towards the individual you're working with. And if you change it from flat bench to pec deck to, okay, now we have side lateral raise and high incline dumbbell press. From a male's perspective, scenario one suits perfect because we want to hit the pec. We want to stimulate those those fibers across lower, upper to get that density and thickness into the chest because from our aesthetics, we'll see that result long-term. From a female standpoint, you will never see that result ever long-term. So why waste the effort doing it? Do what Julia said, shift the program design completely around. So now you have what it's, it's enamored to be like a shoulder dominant push day, right? Yeah. Where you have like you, you can hit, of course, we don't want to call them chest dominant movements, but like a high incline the Smith or a high incline on a dumbbell press, and everything else after that kind of I would say should be shoulder work, medial delts, and um, triceps. And that would, that would be like a very good specific change from a generalized program to then being more female based.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I can't, I don't think I've flat I don't think I flat bench press since I don't know when just because that's not but I think it's all specific to the person like that's not my goal my goal isn't to be a strong bencher my goal is to have nice shoulders so that's why I choose to that's why I choose to train that way and that's why I program that way as well because I know people come to me and they're like how do you get your delts like that and I'm like let me help you
0: (laughs) yeah not 1000% like you said it's it's, it's so specific to, to to the goal um and like if you are flat benching and it is from a strength perspective good there's, there's a great purpose behind that we have to look at the, the mechanics of the individual and where that movement partner is going to align up it's not going to serve a purpose um from a from a, a, a back day or a traditional pull like we said we would bring a lot of that emphasis now toward um bringing more glute and hamstring work potentially bringing in hip hinge work what would be the the general structure of that day, like how would you lay out that more posterior focused day?
1: Um, I would definitely have when we're hitting the upper part of the posterior, definitely focus a little bit more on the lats, yeah. um, rather than the like middle part of the back, just because if we're thinking aesthetics, like that's what's going to give us like a smaller waist if we have nicer over lats, yeah. um, and then hip hinging movements. Definitely, I think that this depends primarily on the person and how, how dominant they are. Like you were talking about before with the quad dominance as well. Like if you want to throw more hinging movements, like a barbell RDL, um, over like a hip thrust, because if someone's very easily quad dominant, it's going to be easy for them to fire up their quads with those, that knee flexation rather than a hinging movement. Uh, so then kind of assessing on personal needs of like what movement would give them a bigger bang for their buck, essentially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, a thousand percent. And it's it's that, that specification of, of the, the posterior and thinking about the pull day, not only as your back, like thinking about the pull as an entire posture, actually a funny, not funny, but a good point to make. Every muscle is a pulling muscle. Like no muscle can push. Every muscle has to pull against joint structure. So now we're talking about pull, but no muscle can push. Muscles can only pull and contract. A fun fun fact. But when we are talking about the posterior, this pull day posterior, we want to create that even discrepancy upper to lower. Like you want to make sure you have good amount of of glute work, good amount of hamstring work. If you're training the back, like Julia said, a good amount of lat work, you know, inevitably, you're going to get like scapular retraction to target your traps. You're going to be hip hinging. So you will have that like isometric demand on the traps as well, but you want to make sure the lats are being really targeted into their shortened and fully shortened and fully lengthened range of motion, just like you would with the glutes, just like you would with the hamstrings, just having that just female specificity to it. Think about a female, think about where you want to put muscle, what in six months time, if they run these mesocycles, and they have many different opportunities to change movement patterns and grow and progress and adapt, how is that going to look long-term? Like that dominance of glutes, hams, having the lats in, it's going to create the best look possible. And then from a a lower body, would you just keep it like full, full lower or would you try to create more quad focus or what way would you run it?
1: Um, usually I would create, if I was doing a push pull lower, I would create a little bit more quad dominance since we are hitting like the glutes and the hamstrings on the pull day. Um, but definitely touch up the glutes and hamstrings on the full lower day.
0: Yeah yeah it's, it's it's a good it's a good point to make as well when we reflected back earlier when we were talking about the frequency like if you look at a seven day split if you do push pull legs rest push pull leg rest you're hitting everything twice so sometimes the gluten hamstring frequency on that second lower doesn't need to be as high because you've literally hit them 24 hours beforehand so you can have that bit more of a drive of more quad focused but if you have like say a push pull rest legs rest then you have a much longer window of opportunity before you hit that muscle group again so you might have to manipulate and alter the frequency based on that time discrepancy then as well um so when we we, we want to maybe create maybe less hip hinge work, or maybe less gluten hamstring work more quad work just so that your overall dominance of the quad is, is quite um particular in that session which is which is pretty which is pretty interesting to to touch on um right okay so so when we look at then, like so obviously we touch on like the the push pull legs and like an upper lower split for us then yes we do look at the, the the push pull legs and we do use that quite a lot but we do look at a lot of other specificities behind the meso and if someone was to look at maybe some of our training splits they might seem a little bit strange of how things are put together but all we we try to do inside the mesos Create like a runway of opportunity where we can see growth and progression. Um, and as the mesocycles unfold, we can manipulate how we have that volume and frequency spread and So you could start off, and it could be a push-pull lower, just like we spoke about, and you have good frequency, good volume. But inevitably, if we wanted to you know ramp up the lower body frequency, we could then change it, and a very common like mezzo that we've, we've ran with clients in the past would be like lower body one, lower body two, lower body three. And you could have maybe like one push, one pull in there. And you've created like now three leg days per week and you have like two upper or three leg days per week and one upper and one posterior. And the, the specificities to it are just endless. They really are. And a, good, a very good point to make as well, there's no right and wrong way to create a program. Like, like we just spoke about having three legs a push and a posterior that's not a program you're ever going to just see generically thrown online but we have created those mesocycles and those set points of structure based on the specificity of the females that we work with and their goals and their demands and you can you can chop and change things as much as you need just based on where you want to see the most amount of growth and adaptation to kick in um have you anything you want you want to touch on that just in regards to like specificity and when you are looking at like creating a meso and you're looking at like now creating a new adaption to that meso or like the next roll around, like what's your thoughts on or how do we progress this? How do we move it forward?
1: Uh, definitely after I feel like after one meso cycle is over, you can kind of a, look at pictures again. Like I'll go back to pictures all the time. Look at how their physique is looking. It, like are they progressing in that meso cycle with what we had? Um, say they had three lower body days to upper and they're coming in very quad dominant and like their lower body's coming across but their posterior chain um is kind of lacking now maybe now you take out one of those like full lower days and you throw in a posterior day um Mm -hmm. and kind of just looking at as they complete those different cycles what is now lacking and what needs like a little bit more help and you can always change around like just because you have one mesocycle where you had this certain specific split doesn't mean that's what it's going to be forever. It's always like a need analysis, I think.
0: Yeah, big time. and Just that kind of like further point that you made there when you said we look at muscle groups and we see muscle groups that need more help and what like what do we need to do? So when you look at it from a volume perspective, and again, if I go too quickly through this please slow me down, or if, if any of you don't understand this at 100%, like message me and I'll discuss. There is different like volume parameters you can work off and each parameter is gonna give you a different response. So we look at MEV, MAV and MRV. So what essentially they're gonna look at is like minimum adaptive recoverable volume. So the minimum amount of volume you can do to create some type of response, the maximum amount of volume you can do to create the most response, and the maximum amount of volume you can do, you just can't recover in essence from. So when you're looking at your, your position of new mesocycle change, you have to almost like look at the muscle groups and think to yourself at some way throughout this volume setup, I'm going to have to have MEV, which is minimum effective volume applied to A, B, and C. And I'm going to have MAV, which is maximum adaptive volume applied to CDE. And we basically then write the mesos looking at, okay, if I have, let's say Julie does not need any more shoulders. Her delts are one of her strongest muscles, but we need more gluten hamstring. So for her in this meso, it's like, okay, well, minimum effective volume is going to be applied to delts and triceps. Maximum adaptive volume is then going to be applied to her gluten hamstring. So when we look at the mesocycle shift, we now have a different direction. Of volume but as we creep into those volume escalations and we creep into strength proximities then we have to look at where or V is going to play into this because you can see shoulders and triceps still being kept in that MEV which is minimum effective volume but then glute hamstrings and quads might be pushing towards maximum recoverable so that you you cannot really recover past this point and you're starting to get a little bit of a hindrance and that's maybe where we need to look at like training deloads and maybe lowering down volume response based on recovery and some kind of good points to make when you're looking at that MRV set point and where you might be seeing that come in it's just general fatigue of a muscle group you know a very under recovered muscle will be a muscle that can't um, progress you know finding it hard to progress through and um, overall stamina and endurance is starting to drop off within that muscle group in that particular session you're finding that you know, even though we're our frequency standpoint should be allowing maximum recovery, we're still not really recovering from session to session. Like we train quads on Monday and we're coming back in again on Thursday. It should be okay. We're still feeling that little bit of an ache, a little bit of a pain, and just general readiness to train is just not there. You have that like internal cue from the CNS to say, right, big man, slow down here. You do not need to go in here and get back in that hack squat again. You need to focus on your recovery the body's very clever and you'll have signal signs like that. And you have to be able to identify those red flags because you may think that, okay, because I'm at that MRV, that, that re- maximum recoverable, I just can't push volume any higher. I'm, I'm going to be overtrained. That's not really a good place to be because if you can't recover from a session, if you can't recover from a muscle group, you can't progress. You can't train optimally throughout the rest of the week. And you've kind of gone, gone past that point of, diminishing return but then when you look at maximum adaptive MAV maximum adaptive volume is like that one step on the ledge and you're safe where you are and you'll make a shit ton of progression where you are you take one step further and you just you just hit into that point of MRV and that's that point where it is in essence past that point of diminishing return there's nothing you can do when you've gone past that point bar scale it all back and when you are looking at that scale back that's when we revert everything back to MEV look at everything back to that minimum effective volume and we gradually build back in from minimum and we work back into adaptive and we come as close to recoverable as possible but the second you see those feedback signs you need to identify and shift and change and there's there's like from i think primarily in strength based programs like power lifters and people of that um nature they do like auto regulated deloads where they would have like minimum effective week one and it'd be like adaptive week two to week eight and they would hit like recoverable week nine they deload week 10 and it's very systematic and it just rolls through we do it just based on feedback you know so we would, we would use a more auto regulated approach where we wouldn't have that specific specificity of what right, you have to deload here we just base it on the feedback but because Muscle group volume discrepancy is so different. Like we said, we could have eight muscle groups, and you know, four of them are on MEV, and five of them are on MAV. It's very hard to identify where a deload needs to come in because the minimum effective are never going to be fatigued. You know, they're always going to be that minimal baseline, but the maximum are always touching that proximity. And once we just see those feedback signs, we just deload, which is everything back to minimum, and then we just rinse and repeat the process again.
1: Yeah, I think do you want to run through what some of the feedback signs would be for like needing a deload?
0: Yeah. um, th- there's, th- there's different ways we can look at like a need to a deload. And, um, and you need to look at like, there are some specificities in the gym and there's specificities outside the gym as well. So in the gym, kind of what we touched on, that like just generally the, the muscle group has not recovered properly. So you're still getting those aches and um, muscle soreness should be a marker point that you track within your clients on a weekly basis. If you have a check in sheet, you need to have an identification of muscle soreness because it's going to be your only real market point in the gym where we can look at training performance is a big one as well. Like, if you're on a progressive run, a good thing we front kind of touching this, it literally only happened to me last week. I don't know what happened in the last two weeks, but my strength has gone from like all time high to just all time high. I was like pressing 65 kilo dumbbells for fun. My strength, everything was just like shoot, 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 shoot. Lo and behold i pushed about far too much and i had to deload and um, this week but because my progression was moving so fast and then my progression completely stopped and i knew I, i've pushed about way too far within this so i identified my progression as a point that i have overtrained and i've overstimulated and my volume has just gone to that point where i'm just not recovering from it anymore i needed to, to, to scale back outside the gym then there's there's other feedback points you can look at so ability to focus is a is a is a pretty big one that's just an overall sensation of essential nervous system fatigue you you can't focus on day-to-day tasks your cognitive function has just completely down regulated to a point where you cannot do the simplest things that you thought you could do but people ignore that people think just something else i'm going through you know I'm, i'm just having a bit of a weird couple of days, no, 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 that's a sign. And know, me and Julia, I spoke about this recently, one of her clients, it's like, when an engine light comes on in your car, you don't ignore the engine light you identify, the, the engine light. It's like pain during the movement. If you get pain in your knee, you don't ignore it. You're going to get it fixed. These are like those marker points that we're looking at. It's like, if you're not progressing, if muscle soreness is there, if there is an, ability, an inability to focus on simple tasks, that's the engine light has come on. And you need to address that engine. Like the overall energy throughout today is, is a pretty big one. And um, appetite dropping down again. That was a, a very good uh, marker point for me. Like I'm in an off very short off season about to start prep again in June, and my cows are like four and a half thousand, close to four four and a half to four seven training day and um, non training day. And like I'm a pretty good eater. Like I can I can grow up. I don't mind getting food in. And I was consuming like three three and a half and I had zero appetite. And my, my digestion was like starting to give me some feedback signs. There was a lot of stress on the body. So if you as appetite completely shifts down, that's also a sign of, of being overtrained. Um, and then your, your sex drive and libido can be a big one as well. And um, particularly in males, when you look at the regulation of testosterone and, and free-flowing testosterone levels, air libido, in essence, can be controlled and identified by that. And when we hit that position of overtrained stimuli, you look at that massive shift in metabolic downregulation where you will see the testosterone levels drop to quite a low level, but inevitably result in effective immediate drop in libido. Kind of an awkward conversation to have with clients, but it could be just one thing you might mention. And they're like, it's kind of funny you say that. Like, yeah, I've noticed that in the last week. I'm like, oh, bingo, there's sign number one. But what's kind of interesting about this as well is that they're not all going to come together. You might get one or two, you might only get one, you might not even realize you have one. But it's just as coaches, you have to have that set point. Like everything we've bar sex drive, everything we've spoken about in our in that conversation is in our check-in sheets. We ask every single one of them points on a week-to-week basis because we're trying to identify where those where those problems may be. And you need to be able to have some way of communication where You'll just identify one or two little of the little shifts and changes in the norm, and you're like, "Oh, that's a little bit strange." We're, we don't usually see that dip in appetite, or we don't usually see that inability to focus. The muscle soreness has creeped up a little bit more, and you dive a little bit deeper, and you see, well, volume is quite high, and you haven't really been progressing. We're not seeing that anymore. Okay, you, you've hit that overtrained stimuli. It's time to it's time to scale back. Yeah, that's how we'd we'd identify it. Yeah.
1: Thanks for explaining that.
0: <laughs> Is there anything else you want to touch on, dude? Because I think we've kind of more or less covered everything from a, a training standpoint.
1: No, I think we I think we covered it all.
0: Awesome, that was good. Now I'm I'm happy with that, and it's it's a topic that we kind of wanted to. So I I want definitely want to speak about anyway for a while. I think it has so much prevalence in day to day programming and what people kind of do on a day to day basis, and the coaches who listen to this, how you can adjust your just overall consideration for program design And um, after listening to this, I think it will definitely help a lot of people. So I'm happy with that.
1: Yeah. Well, it was a good conversation. Definitely insightful for people too, who not even just starters, like people who are pretty well into their um, training and comfortable on a gym floor, just getting some insight on, especially for us, like programming for aesthetics and physique yeah. rather than for strength. It's just like kind of a different spin and take on things
0: yeah I and mean, it's 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 such a it's such a sh- it's just a shift in different worlds but there's so many like correlations between the two and people think you can jump back and forth from one set program design to the next but unfortunately not the case so uh, that was good I- i'm very happy with that right jay thank you very much dude for for coming in i'm sure you have to go and eat or i'm sure you have to go and do something now throughout the rest of the <laughs> I, I
1: definitely have to go eat so <laughs>
0: All right, enjoy your meal dude thanks very much